0: Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be uh, opening God's Word with you this morning. If you're at home because you're watching this because you're affected by the dreaded lurgy, our thoughts are very much with you and uh, and we sincerely love you to be with us, but um, glad that you can join us online. Well, it's uh, the new year and it's time for resolutions. Um, I don't know what yours are, This year, but normally our resolutions, they give voice to some kind of anxiety that we have, like an insecurity or maybe it's something about ourselves or our relationships that we're not content with because we fear that it is somehow doing us no good or harming us in some way. So as we begin this morning, let me ask you, what do you fear? What is it right now that you fear that's troubling you, that's an anxious presence in your life. Normally, fears arise because of some danger, some threat, some thing or some one that casts an ominous shadow that has the capacity to harm you, Someone or some thing that has assumed the role of an enemy. Well, here in this uh, psalm that uh, Felicity just read, Psalm 27, David speaks of his own enemies. There are evil men, verse 2, whose intent is only to harm, perhaps with a sword, perhaps with their words. In verse 12, he speaks of false witnesses who breathe violence, who slay with their words, in other words. And then there are whole armies, even verse 3, who besiege, who make war. And when you think about David's life, it's not hard for us to imagine what he has in mind. There were enemies, of course, over which David had no real control. The murderous Saul, the Philistines. But then there were enemies that were squarely of his own making. Think of all the sordid and treacherous business that would eventually unravel in his own family. Death, fratricide, rape, conspiracy betrayal. It was all in a very real sense David's own fault for stealing the wife of Uriah. The sword will never depart from your house, God declared. In that sense perhaps you could say that David was his own worst enemy. Now the psalm doesn't provide any of these details but we know that when it comes to enemies David pretty well had the whole gamut covered. There were enemies outside his control, there were enemies of his own making, there were even enemies of his own imagining. See, an enemy doesn't have to be real, does it? It's enough for something simply to be an imagined threat or a perceived enemy for there to be fear, isn't it? And David has this kind too. In verse 10 he talks about his father and mother forsaking him. Did his father and mother ever forsake him? Not that I'm aware. Was there even any, any hint that his father and mother might forsake him? Not to my knowledge. But I guess David knows that as unlikely as that might have been, it's still a possibility. They are human beings after all and even the most loyal and devoted can let us down. And just the unlikely possibility of that happening in the case of David's parents is enough to be something of an anxious presence in his life. So let me return to the question that I began with. What do you fear right now? What is an anxious presence in your life right now? Maybe it's the presence of a person who has... Some power or influence in your life, and who cannot always be relied upon to use that power in your best interests or in the best interest of your family. Maybe it's the absence of a person through singleness, through separation, through infertility, through bereavement. And that absence creates a fear will I ever not be lonely? Will I ever find happiness, or will I ever find the same kind of happiness again? Maybe it's a thing, an exam, a medical test. Or maybe it's the absence of a thing, good health, job security, wealth, friendship, a happy marriage, healthy children, responsible children. Or maybe it's an enemy of your own creation, a sin that has consequences or that would have consequences if someone found out. Or maybe you don't need any particular sin to fear yourself, to be your own worst enemy. I mean quite apart from any given sin, I know the power of temptation, I know my own vulnerabilities, I know my frailties and my limitations and what's to say that I won't someday come unstuck. It's happened to others just like me so won't why won't it happen to me too? Maybe it's an imagined threat because I don't have that person's popularity or that person's social life, I'm missing out. You know, FOMO, fear of missing out. Or what's to say that the person whom I love and whose love I currently have no reason to doubt won't someday let me down and hurt me badly? Now, I'd be surprised, very surprised, if I haven't, Covered just about everybody here. Some of those fears are quite normal and natural. It's perfectly natural to fear some impending danger, someone or something that might harm us physically or psychologically. But some of those fears may be inordinate and excessive, out of all proportion to the danger. But just as the psalm doesn't give us the details of David's enemies, so it isn't really interested in kind of offering a kind of pathology of David's fear, it's simply enough that there are harmful threats and that there is fear. Because what it's much more interested in is something that has the power to answer that fear, to neutralise his fear, whatever the cause, whatever the consequences, or whatever the character. Or more precisely, someone. Who can neutralise his fear? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And and even more particularly than that, it's being in the presence of the Lord that David senses that he'll find that shelter from his foes, from his enemies and his fears. Verse 4... One thing I ask from the Lord, Uh, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon the rock. So David looks at us squarely in the eyes and he says, I don't assume peace and health and prosperity, I don't assume a good family life, I don't even assume parents who love me, yet whatever the fear, whatever the foe, whatever the danger, whatever the cause, in God's presence, in his tabernacle, I am secure. Now, I don't know whether this has already occurred to you as I say this, but to my mind, it's not at all obvious that the presence of God would be a place of security, at least not for a sinner like David, or like you or me. let's just linger on that thought for a moment. And of all David's possible enemies, surely far and away the biggest, most serious and most ominous of these, it's not Saul, it's not the Philistines, it's not Absalom, and it's certainly not any any, enemy of his own imagination. It's, It's surely God himself. I mean, out of the train wreck that unraveled in his own family, and let's face it, it was a personal train wreck that played out on the national stage in the most shameful and ugly fashion, enough to make any of our fallen politicians blush. And surely the most ominous, calamitous player in all of that is God himself. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you, says the Lord. The threat of the divine curse makes any other threat no matter how catastrophic, a flea bite by comparison, for it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet, th- through his sin, that is precisely the predicament in which David has found himself. It is the predicament in which the people of God found themselves years after, of, after years of rebellion and self-indulgence. When I was thinking about this psalm, one of my colleagues reminded me of that place in the book of Lamentations where God is described as the enemy of his people. Like an enemy he has strung his bow. Like a foe he has slain. The Lord is like an enemy. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughters of Judah. It's the only time, actually, where a direct simile is used of God. God is like? He's like what? He's like an enemy to his people. And, of course, it's the same predicament that every sinner finds themselves in. We are, by nature, objects of wrath. And so, with all of that in mind, with God as his enemy, what on earth is David on about here? Surely There's so, surely something highly audacious, foolish, naive, even reckless about David's confidence in this psalm. How dare he, how dare you and I march right on in into God's presence, into his tabernacle, into his holy of holies after all he has done, after all we have done not at all obvious that the presence of God should be a place of security for David or for any sinner like you or me. Now, of course, I know, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, of course, David is forgiven by God and his sins have been pardoned and he's been washed and cleansed of guilt. So now he can, well, march right on in. But there's a sense, even in this psalm, that maybe David is not quite so sure verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And then just as soon as he marches on in, does he begin to retrace his steps. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not reject or forsake me, O God, my saviour. See, no matter how certain David is that God is his saviour, there's still a part of him that senses the genuine audacity the scandal that a sinner might boldly approach the eternal throne and so whatever confidence he has it's balanced by an equal instinct to call upon god's mercy i mean never assume that it's the folly of somehow thinking that it's somehow unnecessary or inappropriate for forgiven sinners to confess their sins each time they draw near to his throne, or each time we gather before God when we meet. It's the only proper instinct of any forgiven sinner. But even still, how can David be so sure that there will be mercy, and that ultimately he'll be secure in the presence of God? Well, once again, I know what you're thinking, It rattles off the tongue by rote, doesn't it? No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Clothed in righteousness divine. That's how, David, that's how I can boldly approach the eternal throne and claim the crown. How? Through Christ my own. The one who left his father's throne and bled for Adam's helpless race. And hallelujah, what a glorious truth that is. But how easily does it rattle off the tongue? Because are you really so sure? See, if we were so sure, why do we still find it so unsettling when our security is threatened in some way by someone or something, whatever that someone or something is, even if that thing is a threat of our own making or if it's a threat outside of our own control. I mean, over the last couple of years, the world has had to face what seems like a disproportionate amount of death, for instance. And sometimes in our own little circles, death can come in what feels like waves. I mean, death, of course, is all around us all the time, but it... Sometimes it seems to rear its ugly head in a particularly cruel and savage fashion. Particularly when we find it striking the young with such suddenness and unexpectedness, like we might think of that gut-wrenching, devastating disaster in Tasmania just before Christmas. And as I've reflected on the sudden deaths of people close to my own age, it feels unsettling. It's made me feel finite, vulnerable. It's made me wonder if I'm prepared. I mean, in my head, I know I'm prepared. I know my sins are covered by the blood of Christ. But in my heart, am I prepared for it to happen today? Is it well with my soul today? Is it well with your soul today? See, it's as if we sing of the presence of God as this place of security, of no condemnation, of the absence of all fear, and yet beneath all of that there is still this lingering unsettledness, this rumble of fear, of insecurity, a lingering sense that maybe our place in God's universe is not so secure after all, that in spite of all of his promises, that there still might be enemies out there that can really bring us unstuck. The foe of death is just one of those lingering fears. It's outside of our control, but it's a big one, isn't it? Perhaps because it is outside of our control. C.S. Lewis wrote very honestly about his fears when death came right up close for him in the loss of his wife, Joy Davidman, to cancer. And in the days following her death, one night he was tormented by a truly terrifying thought. It wasn't so much the fear that our lives are an illusion or that beneath the illusion uh, of all our loves and delights and longings and relationships that we're just sort of a random cloud of atoms. No, it wasn't materialism. The thing that really tormented him was the thought that maybe we're rats in a trap or worse still, rats in a laboratory, and that God is just some kind of cosmic sadist who offers false hopes but is actually determined to bring us to misery. He said, when I look at the cold, hard facts, just the empirical reality of life in its ultimate ugliness, in its unstoppable march up many a garden path to its inevitable end in the grave, who's to say otherwise? Now our fears may not confront us in such a raw fashion as it did for C.S. Lewis that night. But isn't there at least something of that in our lingering fears and anxieties? A sense that despite all the assurances and the promises to the contrary, the Lord is my light and my salvation, the Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I fear? That despite all of that, that there might just be something out there that has the power to make a mockery of it all, to make a mockery of every one of God's promises, a mockery of all that we hope to be true about him. When C.S. Lewis was tormented by that fear, not even the cross could console him. So he put it like this, in verses four and five, David longs to be in God's presence to enter his sanctuary, because there he can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But think about it, when the beauty of God incarnate entered his world, surely it was not beauty, but ugliness that prevailed. These days we have an awkward conscience when it comes to beauty, especially men, and rightly so. We can't talk about beauty without thinking of exploitation, without thinking of beauty and all of its vulnerability and its relative weakness being defaced and disfigured by the powerful. It's interesting reading uh, reading about the history of beauty. Um, Commentators will tell you that since the Enlightenment, there's been a tendency in the West to isolate the sublime from the beautiful, the majestic from the cute, masculinity from femininity, the strong from the weak. And as a result, beauty has come out second best, a sorry truth to which the modern sex industry surely bears adequate witness. A trade in which beauty is preyed upon and ultimately disfigured and defaced into something profoundly ugly by the power and privilege of voyeuristic men. Sorry to pick on pornography like that. Well, no, actually I'm not because it's a very fitting analogy of what the world did to Christ. For when the beauty of God incarnate entered the world, not only did the world fail to recognise his beauty, it mustered up all the power and the privilege of Caesar to prey upon and to deface and disfigure that beauty into the profoundly ugly spectacle that was his suffering and death. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was like one from whom people hide their faces, declared the prophet Isaiah. And it was that thought that actually deeply troubled C.S. Lewis, for if all of that is true, why did it God let it happen? What's to say that God wasn't also in on the act? So that when Christ cried out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, and got no answer, what's to say that Christ hadn't at last discovered a Father who turned out to be so horribly and infinitely different from what he had supposed? That the trap, so long and carefully prepared and so subtly baited, was at last sprung upon the cross? like a vile, practical joke. Of course, you and I know that, full well, that the true beauty of the cross is made visible to us, as it were, under the sign of its opposite. That what to natural eyes appears to affirm an ugly truth, that God is at best powerless in the face of evil, or at worst, complicit in evil, the eyes of faith represents precisely the opposite. That in the very suffering and abandonment of the cross, the full power and glory and love of the one undivided triune God reaches its height in redeeming us from evil's power, conquering every enemy and cancelling every charge that stands against us. For if with natural eyes we behold there a power that conquers beauty with ugliness, with the eyes of faith, we behold there a power that conquers ugliness with beauty, the likes of which there is no equal. The beauty of the cross, the only kind of beauty that has the power to cast out all fear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the cross takes all of that away. And yet there's still, there is still fear, isn't there? The fear that the opposite, the enemy, the threat, will finally prevail. And sometimes that fear will rise up with such power and force as it did for C.S. Lewis that night, that it will threaten to knock us off our feet. Now in our last minutes, there's a couple of things I find very helpful about this psalm. Um, The first is the sense that David's on a journey, that he hasn't quite arrived yet. See, in verses 4 to 6, he longs to be in the sanctuary of the Lord, to hide in the shelter of his sacred tent, to be in the presence of that beauty, the beauty of God incarnate. And yet, there's also a sense in which he's not actually quite there yet. His circumstances haven't appeared to change at all. There are still enemies, there are still foes and there are still false witnesses. There is still the opposite, in other words. He lives, as it were, by faith and not yet by sight. But to the eyes of David's faith, and this is the second thing that I find helpful, I think, something has come into view which does not so much change his circumstances but radically transforms his perspective on those circumstances. And what is that? Well, it's a glimpse of the destination that is to come, verse 13. For though now he may only be able to see it dimly, as in a mirror, there will come a time when he will see it face to face. But however dim by comparison to what will then be by sight, even just a glimpse of it now, has the power to neutralise his fears with the light and joy of salvation that is already assured. And brothers and sisters, we too are on a journey, of course. And we too have been given a glimpse of what is to come a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, says the Apostle Paul. And in the meantime, what this hope invites us to is not a change in our circumstances, not in the absence of hostility, not in the absence of COVID or a perfect world, now, if anything, it invites us into the opposite. As God's anointed, David has called us into many, David himself was called into many battles. And, and as God's people, we too are called into many battles. A battle with the world out there, a battle with the devil up there, and a, devil, a battle with the flesh in here. And as we await the final day, it's as if God calls us to enter into the ugliness of the cross because under the sign of its opposite, the mortification of the flesh, the putting to death of that old nature, even all the way to the very gra- our death in the grave, Christ is in fact transforming us by his resurrection power from one degree of glory to another into the objects of beauty we will one day be when we see him face to face. And that is the hope that has the power to neutralise our fears. It's a hope that helps us to see that whatever blade it is that we see coming towards us right now or in the future has been seized from our enemy's hands, by the hands of a heavenly Father, who, like a good surgeon, only ever uses it for our good. But there's a discipline involved in applying this hope to our circumstances because the fears are still there. You get a sense of it there in verse 14. As David faced his own foes, he applied a discipline that he invites us to apply to. Wait. For the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Waiting is a discipline. My children will tell you that. What does it involve? Well, in verse 11, he prays, teach me your way, Lord. At the very least, that's got to involve an attentiveness to God's word. That just as David meditated on God's promises, on the beauty of God and all that the temple symbolised, so too we attend to the beauty of Christ as it's reflected to us in the mirror of God's word, in the promises of the gospel. When was the last time you really slowed down and meditated on these things? But it's not just a call to think about those things only in the abstract. David prays, teach me your way. Lead me in on a level path. In other words, help me God to see that every enemy, every foe that I fear, even today, whether it's out there, up there or in here, Help me to see that it's been hijacked by you. See, it's not the enemy that hijacks God. No, every enemy has been hijacked by him, by a sovereign and loving Heavenly Father who only ever uses whatever foe that is for our good. Help us, in other words, to sense today and every day that perfect love which casts out all fear. Let's pray together. Our loving God, you know all the circumstances of each and every person here today. Many of those circumstances are circumstances which induce anxiety or which have the potential to in- induce anxiety. Whether those circumstances are outside of our control or squarely of our own making and you know our fears our fear that these things might bring us unstuck father we thank you for this psalm and we thank you for the perspective that it gives on who you are as a sovereign heavenly father who has taken every enemy captive and now uses whatever it is that faces us in the hostility of life in this world only for our good. As we wait that, for that day when we will see the sovereign risen Lord Jesus who has conquered the grave. And finally find ourselves to be transformed into his perfect likeness objects of beauty after his likeness. Father, we uh, rejoice in the cross. We thank you, Father, for the eyes of faith that helps us to see that amidst its ugliness, there is the ultimate beauty of a sovereign, loving God who has conquered the grave for the sake of our redemption, a redemption that we do not deserve. So Father, as we wait for that day, please give us discipline to meditate on your promises, to meditate on these truths in a way that will um, neutralize our anxieties with the hope of the gospel. We know, Father, that waiting is a discipline and we know, Father, that we, you, you know, Father, that we struggle as your children, in this way. And we pray, Father, for the strength of your spirit, the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, to minister to us in our weakness, to guide us on that level path. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please stand with us. We're going to close by singing Great Is Thy Faith.